we'll continue in our study through the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 4. I'll just tell you real quick, the big idea of our text today is unity and peace in the family of God. That's, that's uh, the big idea of our text. Unity and peace in the family of God. We can all appreciate this, but dads, I think you most, uh, more, most of all. Uh, because, you know, you, you come home from work and you walk in the door, what do you want? You want unity and you want peace, right? You don't want to deal with everybody at each other's throats. You don't want to deal with the fighting. You don't want to deal, man, with the drama. You know, the, those of you guys that have, you know, daughters, you know drama, right? And, hey, I preach the truth. I'm here. I'm telling you. It's not, it's just what it is. And, and so as fathers, especially, we want unity and we want peace, right? Well, this is what our heavenly father wants for his church, wants for his family, He wants us to have unity, and he wants us to be at peace, right? And so this is what we're going to look at here today. And just real quick, by way of review, and and, and forgive me, I'm going to go through a time of review here because it's important. We're going to build, uh, last last week's message is going to build on on where Paul's going to go today. So here's where we're at. The Apostle Paul is in prison. He's in Rome. He's facing the death penalty. Uh, This church in Philippi is a church he's planted four years before. They're concerned about his state. They sent uh, Epaphroditus, one of their faithful members, to care for him while he was in prison. He brought uh, the the finances to be able to care for him. He brought some encouragement from the church. Uh, And Paul, in return, now sends a letter back with Epaphroditus for those in Philippi. Uh, And the letter is in to encourage them. Uh, This is the book of Philippians that we now study. And in this letter, Paul is emphasizing, he's stressing this theme of joy. Uh, and, And just, it's so integral and so important for the Christian life. And so with this attitude, with this idea of joy and trying to convey uh, this message of joy to his people, uh, he's, he's going to go through and articulate and hit it from several different angles, right? And, and joy is different than happiness, right? Happiness is dependent on your circumstances and joy is not. And that's what Paul is going to begin to express here through the letter from all these different angles. So he starts in chapter 1 just talking about the philosophy of Christian living, basically saying, hey, listen, he says in verse 21 there of chapter one, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And and he's conveying this attitude to these guys. Look, it doesn't matter that I'm in prison. It doesn't matter that I'm facing the death penalty. I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. and, And so my philosophy, my outlook has changed. And so my circumstances are bad, but my Lord is good and I have joy. He transitions from that into chapter 2, and there in chapter 2, he focuses on the pattern for Christian living. And there he talks about how Christian living requires humility, and it takes help of our brothers and sisters in Christ, and it's just flat-out hard work. And, and his, his attitude there is to convey, look, yes, we're saved by the goodness and the grace of God, and yes, that's a work that God does and that we can't do, but having been saved, we have to now work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Not work for our salvation, but we have to work out our salvation. And that is just, quite frankly, a lot of hard work. So you can't be shocked by it. You, you, you can't be taken aback by it. You can't be lazy about it. You have to have an attitude that says, yes, I've been saved, uh, but now being saved, I need to now work out my salvation. 
Uh, and so it doesn't matter that we're going through trials. It doesn't matter we're going through hardship. We can have joy knowing that God's working in us and that he's working out through us. And so this is part and parcel of the Christian life. So we have the philosophy of Christian living. We have the pattern of Christian living. And then Paul transitions into chapter 3 to talk about the prize for Christian living. Uh, and and uh, we looked uh, at uh, that last, last week as we're, we're closing out chapter 3 last week. And his point simply talking about the prize for Christian living is, hey, we have reason to rejoice in Jesus Christ because we're saved, because we have our salvation. Uh, And and so, you know, we looked at that in a couple of parts. We looked at how salvation is exclusively, entirely a work of God on our behalf. And we looked at the other side of that about how the work that we now have to do as Christians. Uh, This doctrine of salvation uh, encompasses three doctrines, important doctrines for Christianity. These are the doctrines of justification, sanctification, and glorification. Big words, but simple meanings. Justification, simply stated, uh, is the work of Jesus, and this focuses on the past, our salvation, the past of our salvation, the work that Christ has done on the cross for us to forgive us of our sins. This is a work that Jesus does. It's not a work that you can do, and, and it's never a work that you can do. We can never earn our salvation. He moves on from that, and he talks about this doctrine of sanctification, uh, sanctification is the work of Jesus in the presence, in, in the present. This is the crucible of the day-to-day life. Uh, sanctification is a word that simply means to be set apart. And, and yes, we, uh, we are saved, but we're also set apart unto good works. Not, not by good works, but we're set apart unto good works, uh, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In fact, Ephesians 2.10 says that. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Well, the third doctrine that we looked at last week was this doctrine of glorification. It's the work of Jesus in the future uh, when we will be glorified together with Christ. Uh, The Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 8 that we are God's children, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. Uh, And so just as Jesus rose from the death, someday we too will rise from the death, and we will be glorified together with Christ. So last week, the, the, the big idea looking at justification and glorification as the bookends of salvation right? And a lot of people live their lives focusing on these two things and ignoring the middle. And the reason they focus on these two things is because justification is the work that Jesus did on the cross. Glorification is the work that Jesus will do when we go to heaven. And so, you know, hey, hallelujah, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. Yeah, but what's in between? Just the rest of your life. That's what's in between, right? And the rest of your life is this hard work of working out your salvation, Again, not working for, but working out. And working out your salvation, uh, man, it takes this concentrated focus on cooperation with God and allowing God to mold and shape you and to transform you. And this is the ideas that Paul's talking about here as he's talking to the Philippians. And last week, what we looked at was uh, five kind of practices, if you will, Paul talks about in the sanctification process, basically saying, look, if you want to be mature, if you want to be set apart to God, and you want to have God do this maturing, growing work in your life, you want to be sanctified, well, then you can focus on employing these several practices. Now, just real quickly, by way of review, give them to you, but you'll, 
Uh, I won't go into them. You can listen to them online if, if you're, you missed the message last week. But basically, Paul says this. He says, number one, you got to confess that you have room to grow. Number two, you have to make progress in your life. Number three, you have to forget the past and focus on the future. Number four, you need to set out uh, or seek out and follow godly examples if you want to grow and mature in Christ. And fifthly, he says, you have to remember where you're going. That, you know, that our home is not of this world. We're, we're pilgrims passing through. Our, citizenship's, it, 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 our citizenship is in heaven. And so that keeps us focused on, man, I need to grow, I need to work, and I need to stay keeping my eyes fixed on the goal. That's where I'm headed. Well, Paul's building all, on all of that today here in our text as we transition into chapter 4. And, and basically what Paul's doing today is he's talking about, well, the sanctifying work that, that, that you need to work on in yourselves, you also have a sanctifying work that pertains to your relationship with other people. And quite frankly, that's the place where most of us tap out, just to be honest with you. What happens is I can deal with, okay, I can't eat bonbons on the couch, metaphorically speaking, in my spiritual life. I have to grow. I have to mature. I've got some shortcomings I need to work on. But it's a lot easier for me to work on my shortcomings than it is for me to work on your shortcomings, quite frankly. Right? Haven't you discovered that? People, they, they, they make you mad. And, and have you noticed that your sin looks really ugly on other people, Right? My sin doesn't look nearly as ugly on me, but it sure looks ugly on you, right? And so what happens is, as God wants to sanctify us, as he wants to mature us, as he wants to grow us, well, yeah, there's things that we have to do in working on our own walk, but he also does a lot of work with us together, brother and sister in Christ, having to work it out. And and so this is exactly where we find ourselves today. We find ourselves with the text opening up with Paul basically wearing the black and white striped shirt with a whistle, and he's breaking up a fight. That's what's going on here. He's like, man, you got the sanctifying work that you got to do in you, but you also got to break it up. You got to quit fighting between one another. Well, verse two, we'll pick it up there. He says, I implore Euodia, a woman, and I implore Syntyche, another woman, to be of the same mind in the Lord. In other words, you got two women that are fighting, in the church. Oh, imagine that, right? (laughs) Two women that are fighting in the church. Verse three, and I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel. In other words, he's saying, look, these aren't just women in the church. These are leaders in the church. These are two of the women who, who labored with me in the gospel And they're fighting between one another and they need some help. He goes on. He says, they labor with me in the gospel with Clement also, another faithful servant, uh, and the rest of my fellow workers. And so these guys were part of a team. He says, and um, whose names are written in the book of life. And so he makes it abundantly clear. We're talking about women or we're talking about, yeah, we're talking about women here, but we're talking about saved women here. We're not talking about unbelievers. We're talking about believers within the church. Now, what stands out to me as I read these two verses and what I take note of isn't so much that there's fighting within the church. Go figure, right? There's fighting within the church. That doesn't surprise me. It doesn't even surprise me that it's two women that are fighting in the church. And it doesn't surprise me that it's two women leaders that are fighting in the church. No, here's what stands out to me. Paul is 800 miles away, and he knows about the fight that's going on in the church of Philippi, right? 
I mean, it's an incredible thing. Have you noticed how word just quickly spreads? Have you noticed? Word spreads like a fire. Man, we were at VBS this week, and they were handing out gogurts one day. Gogurt is the yogurt. It's frozen. It's like a slice of heaven if you've never had it, especially when it's almost 100 degrees outside. And what I noticed was as they were handing out these, these, these go-gurts to all the, the kids, a lot of the leaders weren't taking them. And, and they were, you know, their mind, their, their, their attitude was, we'll make sure the kids have enough. Well, I'm looking and we got plenty. So I grab a box of these things and I walk around and I'm starting to hand them out to the different leaders, right? And I have this little kid that runs up to me. He says, can I have one? I sure. I didn't get 10 feet. I had 50 kids around me. Can I have a go-gurt? And this is what happens when, it, when these, you know, fights and quarrels and divisions, man, it's like a wildfire. It just spreads. It just takes off, right? And so, you know, there, there's just this, this attitude of, oh, my gosh, look at this fight. Look at what's going on. My kids, they're listening to uh, the, the, the fires up in Colorado. They're listening to the scanners and all the firemen talking. And, and I, I told him, and it's funny, as I listened to it, I'm reminded of a story. We had a guy, he rolled up on a fire. He got dispatched to a little, you know, vegetation fire, and, he, and it was a super windy day. And he rolls up to this, this area of vegetation. He says, yeah, it's a small spot. I'm going to catch it real quick. He comes back like 30 seconds later on the radio. We're listening to this unfold on the radio. 30 seconds later after getting on scene and saying, yeah, it's a small spot. I'm going to catch it real quick. He comes back. He says, that's about a quarter acre now. I think I can get ahead of it. 30 seconds maybe goes by. He comes back on. That's about three acres. You better start me a strike team out here. He comes back like not even 30 seconds later. He says, uh, it's, it's, a, it's about five acres. Uh, you better start me some additional equipment, some manpower. And then he comes back like 15 seconds later. It's gone. Turned into like a three-day fire, hundreds of people there, personnel. This thing just took off and spread. And that's what happens when there's fights, when there's quarrels, when there's division. It just takes off and it spreads, right? And here's what else happens. It, it takes on a life of its own. And so here you've got these two women in this church in Philippi, and what happens is not only does word spread really quick, and Paul's now going, you know, hey, 800 miles away, no, no uh, you know, email, no cell phone, but I hear, I hear there's, a, there's a big old fight going on, and he even knows the girls' names, right? You know, it's going on between these, these two women. So not only does, does he know, not only has it spread, but it's causing division within the church. And it always does that. It always does that. How many, just by show of hands, how many of you have been a part of a church split? Can I just see a show of hands? How many of you have experienced through it? See that about at least 50% of us have raised our hands and, 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 you know, and that's just tragic. It's just tragic. And it always happens the same thing. There's always a fight. There's always a quarrel. It always spreads like wildfire. And what happens is when it spreads, people choose sides. Brenda and I were at dinner a couple weeks ago at a local restaurant. It was a Friday night dinner time, so it's packed, it's busy. And there's this, this family there, this man, this wife, his, his two or three kids. Um, and, uh, and so they, we're, Brenda and I are seated, we're having our dinner, and now they come walking past the table. Well, the man walks by, and about, you know, 30, 50 feet behind him, his wife now finally comes walking by with her kids. Well, he, since, gets to his table. He's following the, the, the hostess and realizes she's not there, turns around, walks back. Well, they meet up right 
adjacent to our table. She says to him, you could have waited for me. Uh, and he's like, well, what you, I'm just following the hostess, you know, kind of. And so they have this, this brief sort of argument. He grabs one of the kids. They go on to their table. Brenda says to me, um, she's angry with him because he left her. Uh, and I said, uh, well, for crying out loud, cut the guy some slack. He probably has been waiting on her all day long. It's like, you know, get in the car. We're going to eat. Get out of the car. We got to get into the restaurant. Hurry up. The table's ready now. And you're lollygagging back there. You know, Brenda says to me, oh, she's probably been, you know, just having to mop up and follow up and get the kids. And we go back and forth. What's happened? We've picked sides. And now before you know it, we're having an argument at our table. That is what's going on here. It's exactly what's going on here. You got two people in the church, and I don't know what their issue is. He doesn't say it, but they've got this issue that's going on. They're divided, they're fighting, and the division now spreads, and people are picking sides, and it's causing division within the church. It's exactly what's going on in here. And Paul says, look, this is the problem. It's a big problem. Now, how many of you guys are, are motorcycle riders? Guys, gals, how many of you guys ride motorcycles? See, show of hands, all right. There's a, there's a the saying, help me out here. There's a saying, it says, there's two types of motorcycle riders. There's them that has been down and those that are going down, right? Okay, you've heard it. This is, now I use that just to tell you, here's why this is important. Because when it, ca- when it talks about unity within the church, fights, quarrels, division, there's two types of church attenders. There's those that have experienced and been a part of fights, quarrels, and division, and those that are going to be a part of fights, quarrels, and division. This affects every single one of us here. So it's really important for us that we pay attention to what Paul says here because we're all going to have to practice this, right? This applies to all of us. So here's what, what Paul does. He gives a prescription for this division. He says, hey, you need, if you're taking notes, write it down, you need to be like-minded. That's what he says there in verse 2. He says, I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, if you're given to taking notes, circle that, that phrase, of the same mind. And nearby, you could write this. You could write, to cherish the same view, because that's literally what it means. To cherish the same view. Now, interestingly and very tellingly, this is the exact same word that Jesus used in Matthew chapter 16 when he was talking to Peter in Caesarea Philippi. See, what happened there, the the story, uh, basically, Jesus talking to his disciples, he's in Caesarea Philippi, and the region filled with all of these shrines and all of these, 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 uh, you know, idols and so on. And Jesus, using that as a backdrop, says to his disciples, who do men say that that I am? Right? And so, you know, some say you're Elijah or one of the prophets, and, you know, who do you say that I am? Peter jumps up, he says, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus is like, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah. You got it right. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my spirit revealed this to you, right? And so, you know, he gets a star on the chart. He, hey, you, got an, you aced it, Peter. Well, he turns right around from there, and Jesus begins to tell his disciples about how he's going to have to suffer. He begins to tell them about, listen, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to be crucified. And, and he's explaining this to these guys. And what does Peter do? Peter takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. I'll put the scripture on the screen for you, Matthew 16, 23. But he, that's uh, 
uh, now Peter is, is rebuked Jesus, but he, that is Jesus, turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not, and here's our word, mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. You are not cherishing the same view, Peter. See, again, we don't know the particular division that's taken place within uh, the church there in Philippi. We don't know why these two uh, leaders, these two women leaders within the church are fighting between themselves, why they're not being like-minded. But I can maybe surmise that it's not unlike what happened here with Peter. Because listen, take note of this. The division, when Peter has this division with Christ and Jesus says, look, you were an offense to me. You are really right now operating in, <laughs> as an agent of Satan, uh, you know, in that you are, you are not mindful of the things of God. You're mindful of the things of men. It's not that Peter at that point was saying, you know what, I don't think that we ought to worship God. I think we ought to worship one of these other idols. It's not that Peter was blatantly saying, hey, you know what, I think we ought to just forget all of this stuff and maybe go back to that tax collecting thing or maybe we, you know, we could go back to the fishing thing or whatever it was. He wasn't saying something that was unbiblical in the sense that, no, it was, it was actually something that was couched and sort of had a, a religious aspect to it. See, because here's the thing. What they thought, their, their idea was that the Messiah was going to come And that the Messiah was going to deliver them from this Roman occupation. And the Messiah then was going to establish his rule and his reign. And that they there as his right-hand men, they were all going to have positions of power and authority. And and they were going to rule and reign with him. Which we will, but not in the way that Peter thought. That's the important part. See, what happened was Peter had a desire and an expectation that was not in line with the desire and the expectation of God. And so what he did was he took a good thing and he made it a God thing. And he said, no, Jesus, your plan, no. This is how it's going to work. I'm getting a corner office. I'm getting a secretary. You're going to rule and reign. We're going to show these Romans who's boss. This is how it's going to work. And Jesus says, you're Satan. And see, so what I surmise and what I do is I look at these two women and I say, I don't know what their division was, but chances are it had something to do with the church at Philippi and how they ought to do things at the church at Philippi. And they became divided over a good thing and they made it a God thing. And Paul says, no, 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 you need to cherish the same view. You guys are divided and you're causing division and hardship within the church and you need to stop doing that. And this is the enemy's tactic always. He loves to divide like this. Peter said this in 1 Peter 5.8. He said, be sober, be vigilant because your adversary the devil walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And I don't know about you, but I've seen just enough Discovery Channel to have a mental picture of that, Right? Where, what, how, what does the lion do? You got the, you got the herd there. They're all together. And he, what he does is he charges in and he divides the herd. And then what's he do? He finds the straggler. He finds the one on the outside, typically a baby, an immature, uh, you know, or sick or wounded, you know, individual that's, that's been now divided from the herd and has been isolated. And he devours them. Right? And this is exactly what happens in the church. 
And this is why God, throughout his word, he cautions us over and over again, hey, you can't be divided. You have to be unified. You have to work on unity. The psalmist said this in Psalm 133, verse 1, said, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Uh, Ephesians 4, 3 says this, Endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul, a couple chapters back in Philippians 2, 2, said, Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And here in Philippians uh, Chapter 4, verse 2, he says, Man, I implore Euodia and Syntyche to be of the same mind. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, right before he went to the cross, praying to the Father, said, Father, I pray that they would be one, even as you and I are one. See, Satan's agenda, his his plan is to to run in, to, to cause there to be division, to get to get you isolated, to get those who are wounded, those who are sick, those who are immature, to get them extended and out from from the group to get them divided from the group so that he can devour them. And we need to be mindful of that. Now, will you notice what he says as we go on? We'll reread verse 3, but we'll read through verse 5. He says, And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are written in the book of life, and then he says, and this is our key verse, by the way, for the entire book of Philippians, uh, Philippians 4.4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Now, here's what's significant about this. There is the right way to help people, and there's the wrong way to help people. Okay? There's a right way to help people, and there's a wrong way to help people. The right way to help people acts, Paul says, in gentleness and rejoicing. It acts in gentleness and rejoicing. And so, so here's how I would illustrate that. Right now in our church, thank you, Jesus, we have unity. And we pray for this often, and, and we've, we've had seasons where there hasn't been unity, and we've gone through dealing with this same type of situation. Every church has to deal with this. Right now, thank you, Jesus, things are good. Uh, to, the, to the best of my knowledge, we don't, we don't have, you know, people that are murmuring and complaining. We don't have this kind of division. But let's say that we did. If you had an individual who's, who's got an axe to grind, who's complaining, uh, who's being divisive, the, the natural dynamics always follow suit. So you're going to get those people that start taking sides. It just happens. They don't keep it to themselves like they should. They don't take it to that, you know, if your brother sins against you, go to your brother. This is typically how these things perpetuate. People are disobedient to the word. And they take offense uh, and then they take off and they start telling. So much easier for me to tell 12 of your friends what you've done than for me to tell you what you've done, right? And so what will happen is that thing will happen. It'll begin to take off. Now, if you want to help them in the right way, man, you do it with a spirit of gentleness and, and you do it with this attitude of rejoicing. And so, so again, let's say we've got somebody here in the church. They're disgruntled. They're talking. There's division that's, that's going. Well, the way that a person can actually help them in a godly way, man, gentleness going to them. Hey, look, I love you. And then the rejoicing is, well, it, would, it might look something like this. Hey, guys, do you remember on Sunday the video that we watched? Do you remember what just happened over this last week? We have a lot to rejoice in. I mean, 70 kids, over 70 kids, 
made professions of faith for Christ. And we had our whole church banding together. Now, you want to come up with a list of some things that are wrong at the church? Man, I can help you with that list, and it'll be the longest list that we ever came up with. But you know what else that I can do? I can tell you, I see a lot that we can rejoice in. I see Jesus Christ moving and working among sinful men and women, and I see kids coming to know the Lord, and I see people growing. We have a lot to rejoice in. And see, that's helpful, and that's productive. And so when we have these times of division, yes, we, we, it's just natural tendency to take sides. Yes, it's just natural tendency to jump on and to pile on and to, hey, let's duke it out. But Paul says, look, if you want to, to be this, this ambassador of peace, if you want to be this person, this godly person that's going to help, if you want to be, as he says in verse 3, a true companion, then you can help, and you can help by having an attitude of gentleness, and you can help by rejoicing. Now, here's the mistake that we make. A lot of times, what we do instead is we think we're helping the person by not acting in gentleness and rejoicing, but rather we react and we play into the emotion. And so what we do is we take sides, we react, and then as that person complains, as they murmur, as they bicker, we give them that sympathetic ear, and we nod in agreement, and we say, oh, you, you were right to be upset. Yes, you should be offended. Yes, that was not right what happened to you. Proverbs 18 verse 17 talks about how one seems right until another steps forward and examines him, which is just a biblical way of saying, look, there's two sides to every story. And the way, man, that we can be somebody that really isn't helping in a biblical or in a right way is when we just swallow hook, line, and sinker what somebody has to say in anger, bitterness, and divisiveness, and we just, we just take their side. I serve on several church boards, and several years ago, one of the boards that I serve on, we had a situation where there was church discipline that was indicated for one of the leaders involved. And, uh, you know, biblical grounds, we had to have this person step down. And we went to them, and we counseled with them, and, you know, we're just trying to bring them through it. Look, we've got to have you step down. But it's not, you know, we're going to shoot you. No, we're going to have you step down. We're going to minister to you. We're going to work on you. We want to work to restore you here. This was the attitude. But, you know, those, they're sensitive conversations. There's maturity and there's, there's wisdom that's indicated there. And it's not easy to have somebody come to you and to discipline you. Nobody, no discipline is present. You know, the Bible talks about, you know, no discipline seems present at the time, right? But we've all had fathers that have disciplined us and we thank them for it. We love them for it and we appreciate it after the fact, right? If you submit to it, well, this person wouldn't submit to it and this person wouldn't be quiet and this person was very divisive and before the end of the story, uh, you know, manifested itself, basically they left the church and a bunch of families left the church with them. And sadly, this kind of stuff happens all the time. And the reason it happened was because, man, they, I mean, as I read through, you know, verse two of chapter four, I go, oh, I, that, I'm reminiscent of that. You know, Paul, 800 miles away, being told about something he never should have heard about. And it reminded me of conversations I had in this situation where I'm saying, hey, look, you and me are talking about this, but we shouldn't be talking about this. You shouldn't even know about this. As I talk to some of these other families that are involved in this divisive hurtfulness that's, that's all flowing out from this, hey, they never should have even been involved. Why am I now having this conversation with you? Well, because they involved you. 
They, they, they conducted themselves in a way that was unbiblical, and now you're involved, and so now I need to have this conversation with you, and here's what the Bible says, and here's what we're doing. You see, and, and the Bible says it's an enemy that multiplies kisses, but listen, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And so if, you know, a lot of times in the name of helping somebody, we're actually multiplying kisses, and we actually are an enemy to the cross of Christ. By, by not telling a person what they need to hear and instead telling them that they want to hear and encouraging them in ways of division. Skip down to verses 8 and 9 as we sort of explore this thought a little bit. Paul says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, well, whatever things are of good report, if there is any uh, virtue... Uh, And if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Uh, The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. That word meditate there in verse 8. He says meditate on these things. And maybe you might want to circle that word. Nearby, here's what you could write. You could write the uh, the words count, weigh, or calculate. Count, weigh, or calculate. That's what that word meditate means. You see, and too often what we do is when somebody is being divisive, when somebody's got an ax to grind and we give them a sympathetic ear, what we do is we allow and and work with them to count, weigh, and calculate the wrong things. And so, you know, oh, yes, he said that, and she said that, and then you said what? Oh, yeah, and then they said, oh, that put them in their place, and we're counting, we're weighing, we're calculating all of the wrong things. And Paul says, no, 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 there, you need to meditate on what? Well, whatever's true, whatever's just, whatever's noble, these are the things that we need to help them to count and to weigh and to calculate. And I can't help but think in the situation that I mentioned on this church board that I'm on, had that person had friends that would actually help them to count and to weigh and to calculate the things that were just and the things that were true, the things that were lovely, in a spirit of gentleness and the rejoicing in, look at what God's doing. And if you want to talk about what's imperfect, well, yeah, get in line, man. There's a lot of stuff to talk about. Can we focus on this, what is just and what is true? Man, it would have had a completely different outcome. Now, so far, these two women, they haven't worked out this situation they, 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 they haven't been able to, to uh, you know, be able to, to come to a godly and a biblical and a harmonious uh, reconciliation of their, of their division. And the result is that the people are anxious. And the context here is Paul is now going to go into in uh, verse five, or verses 6 and 7 where we're going to finish off in looking at where he says, be anxious for nothing. The context that he's going to talk about here is that this anxiousness that they're experiencing has come from this division because of these women's uh, uh, not reconciling their differences in a biblical way. But what I want to do now for the balance of this, because anxiousness, it doesn't, there's no situation that has the corner on the market on anxiousness and anxiety, is there? No, what I want to do, because Paul's going to talk through about how do we handle anxiousness? How do we handle anxiety? And, and let me tell you why this is so important that we take a look at this. Because I, and again, I don't, I don't know what the circumstance is in your situation, but here's what I know. 
There was a study that was published by the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry, and it was called The Economic Burden of Anxiety Disorders, right? And here, this study that they commissioned, here's what they found. They found that anxiety disorders are the most common mental health, health illness in the United States and that they affect over 40 million adults, anxiety disorders. That's close to 20% of the adult U.S. population uh, over the age of 18 struggle with anxiety disorders. Let me put that in context. That's about one in five people. That's about 100 of our adults, statistically speaking, struggle with an anxiety disorder. Anxiety disorders cost over $42 billion a year, and they make up one-third of our nation's mental health budget. Okay? So a third of all the money that our nation spends on psychiatric help is all attributable to anxiety disorders. People with anxiety disorders, this study found, are five times more likely to go to the doctor, and they're six times more likely to be hospitalized. And here's what this means. This means that many of you today are struggling with anxiety. You're coming in burdened. You're coming in weighted down. Now, there's a lot of definitions for anxiety. I like the way one commentator uh, defined it in a funny sort of way. He says that uh, anxiety, here's the definition of it, it's anticipating the future in the worst possible scenario and freaking out about it. (laughs) Right? That's me. I'll just put my hand out. How many of you, that's you? I always see the worst possible. This church has failed a hundred times in my mind. You know, I see the worst possible outcome. Oh, that's what's going to happen. I know it, right? And and this, this is the definition of anxiety. Now, what causes anxiety? (laughs) Yeah, get out a pen and paper and I just start taking stuff from you guys, right? I'm going to share with you real quickly six leading causes according to the mental health community, okay? Six leading causes of anxiety according to the mental health community. Um, in, in uh, you know, random order. Uh, fractured support systems causes anxiety. This means lacking family, lacking friends. You're otherwise isolated from people. Uh, so a fractured support system causes anxiety. Uh, financial trouble. There's a shock. That causes anxiety, right? Uh, another one, busy lifestyle that contradicts, as I put it, the rhythm of creation. Uh, in other words, when the sun goes down, you don't, right? That's what that means. It means you're working all different hours. Uh, and my kids ought to be stressed out of their minds if that's the, the definition. Um, constant noise or interruption by technology. Now, they, they, this constant noise produces anxiety. I'm going to give you a great example. Pastor Cody King, as you're sitting here, second row. Pastor Cody and, and Michael will come over to their house and they'll bring their four girls, right? And their four girls are awesome. They call me grumpy, right? And, um, and so my wife's to blame for that. Um, they're awesome. Now, they're four little girls, and they like to scream. And so the noise level in our house goes from here to here when, when they're over at our house. Now, we've talked, to, we laugh with Cody and Micah about this, but we'll, we'll walk into the door, and the noise level is just going crazy. They're, ah, they're screaming, and then we'll tell you, we'll see you, which. And Brenda and I will look at each other. We'll go, just wait. It just goes from anxiety and noise level just to, oh, quiet, right? You guys can all, you know, you're with me on that. So constant noise, that creates anxiety. Overwork creates anxiety. Did you know the average American works in excess of 50 hours a week? 
20 years ago, it was 40 hours a week, and it just continues to, to escalate. Uh, overwork causes anxiety. And and uh, sixth leading cause of, of anxiety is a general loss of hope. General loss of hope. These are all causes of anxiety. Now, what are the symptoms of anxiety? Real quickly, just for fun. What are the symptoms? Anger, depression, mood swings, general irritability, isolation, right? Those are, those are all, uh, with the exception of isolation, I suppose you could just put Ted Leavenworth, anger, depression, mood swings, general irritability. Brenda goes, that's you. Every time you're preparing a message, you're all anxious. Uh, exhaustion and or insomnia. Checking out. You ever checked out mentally? Fragmentation is another associated one of that. That means you're just scatterbrained. That's a symptom of anxiety. Uh, Health-related issues, nervous twitch, canker sores, weight loss, weight gain, high blood pressure, headaches, heart trouble, chronic sickness, stomach problems, ulcers. You say, I've got every single one of those, right? Paranoia or suspicion. And you know, if you just asked, what the heck's that supposed to mean? Well, then that's you right there, right? fantasizing about dying, right? For the Christian, this is the rapture. Oh, I wish the rapture would hit right now, right? Uh, Abusive behavior, drugs, alcohol, excessive tobacco or caffeine intake, uh, shopping sprees, overspending, right? These are all uh, symptoms of anxiety according to the mental health community. Here's the point, because I mean, as I read through it, I'm like, I got that, I got that, I got that, I got that. Here's the point. Life causes anxiety. Every single one of us is in the barrel at some point. Life causes anxiety. It just does, right? So what do you do? What, what, how do you handle anxiety? What is a way that we can be delivered from anxiety? Well, again, the mental health community, their answer to that is behavioral therapy, cognitive therapy, antidepressants, tranquilizers, exercise, and alternative treatments. Yoga, aromatherapy, biofeedback. This is their get on a regime of all of these things. And, and And I don't want to discount some of the things that work, but can I just tell you that there's a lot more effective way to deal with anxiety? And it's right here in Philippians chapter 4. God's word addresses this thing. In, and, and, I'm, and I'm not saying, I don't want to just Pollyanna it or, or paint it with a broad brush and say there's not such a thing as chemical imbalances, that there's not such a thing as, you know, a, a need for medication or things like that. But here's what I am saying. I'm saying that every one of us struggles with anxiety and the answer to the relief of our anxiety is right here in verses six and seven. Paul says this, and I'm going to close with this as I glance at the clock. We're just going to be a couple of minutes, and we'll be done. Paul says this, be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for, what is the word? Nothing. Is that possible? Holy moly. This is a command. It's not a suggestion. He says, be anxious for nothing. That in itself stresses me out. I'm anxious about that. (laughs) Be anxious for nothing. (laughs) I'm being disobedient, right? Here's how. But in everything... By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. And so Paul says, look, if you're anxious, the answer is prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving. Prayer, supplication, thanksgiving. Let me break this down real quickly. Start with supplication. What is supplication? 
Well, literally, it just means need. That's what it means. Supplication is when you make your needs known to God. Now, I'm explaining this to my daughter Megan yesterday. She says, what is supplication? I said, I'm glad you asked. I'm teaching that tomorrow. Supplication means need. Glad you asked that. Right? She's like, you know, so, so, you know, you just let your needs be made known to God. She goes, wait a minute, that's prayer. I said, no, sweetheart, that is not prayer. That is not prayer. See, that's part of prayer, but that's not prayer. Um, 1 Thessalonians 5.17. It's an easily memorized verse because it has three words. Pray without ceasing. That's 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Does that mean that we pray every second of every day? No. What that means is that we have an attitude of prayer. What it means is that your lifestyle is characterized by simply talking to God. That's what prayer is. Supplication is where you say, God, this is what I need. But prayer, prayer is just talking to God. And I'll illustrate it this way. Years ago, when I was working at the fire department, the rule was you didn't call after 10 o'clock, right? Guys go to sleep, don't call after 10 o'clock. Well, midnight one night, my wife calls. And everybody's upset because now we're all awake. Captain comes in. He's none too happy. Leavenworth, your wife's on the phone. I'm like, Brenda knows the drill. Something's wrong. I get on the phone. I'm like, what's going on? And she's in tears on the other end of the phone. The dog got in the backyard and he chewed up the sprinklers and the water's running everywhere and I can't shut it off and he's all covered in mud. I'm like, go out. And I'm trying to tell her how to go out and turn off the anti-siphon valve manually that the dog had chewed up now. And she's just crying on the other end. I'm trying to fix it. And, uh, and basically, the, the, the outcome of the call, I have to confess, I, I really wasn't, I wasn't that compassionate. I'm like, why are you calling me? I'm 80 miles from home. I'm on a first day shift of a 72-hour shift. Uh, call a plumber. He can come over and fix that. That was my thing. Now, through, we've been married 27 years, believe it or not. Through that, <laughs> through that, here's what I learned. My wife didn't call me to fix it. She called me to cry about it. That's what she called. She needed somebody to talk to that she could just cry with, Right? That's what, that was her great need. She's like, and we as guys, we don't get this. I, I, you, you know, you call me, I'm going I'm to fix it. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to fix it. Look, I don't need you to fix it. I need you to listen, right? We don't get it, but it's what we need. And here's what it does. You need to understand this. This is not a personality thing. It's not a man-woman thing. It's a biblical thing. When you pray, it's part of the component that the peace of God guards your heart and your mind. Just talking to God. Just talking to him, just engaging him in conversation. Now, supplication is a part of that. I'm anxious, God, because I can't pay the bills, and I, I didn't get that, that job that I wanted, and I'm stressed out. Okay, so you're talking to him and the supplication. Hey, look, I need this. I'm asking you for it. And the God says that we should, we should ask, and I'm asking. The third component is thanksgiving. And we overlook this so often. I'll close with this illustration. Just turn with, with me real quick. We'll close here uh, to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. It's the story of David and Goliath. That address sounds familiar. We're going to pick it up in verse 33. It just basically quickly set up the story for you. David has gone to bring his brothers some supplies. He finds the whole Israeli army quaking before this giant Goliath. Nobody's, you know, willing to fight him. Everybody's afraid. And David says, 
I'll fight him. So picks up in verse 33, and Saul, King Saul, said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine uh, to fight with him. He's nine feet tall for crying out loud. You are a youth and he a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and I struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defiled or rather defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me, this is important, from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Give me your attention real quick. David, at this moment, is facing the largest enemy he's ever faced in his life. He has a giant that's staring him down, that's threatening to kill him. Some of you here this morning, in this area of anxiety, you're facing a giant right now. And it's staring you down and it's threatening to kill you. And what did David do? David had all kinds of people saying, this giant's gonna kill you. You can't take this giant, David. And David said, let me, with thanksgiving, Look back and remember what God has done for me. Because when I was a boy and I was tending my father's sheep and a lion or a bear came and attacked, I fought them, I overcame them. And I would imagine at the time that was the biggest enemy that he'd ever faced. And he says, you know what? God was faithful to me then and God's gonna be faithful to me now. See, his faith was increased. His anxiety Replaced with peace. Why? Because he remembered with thankfulness. Hey, God has never left me. He's never forsaken me. He's always been right there with me. Now, and I guarantee you, God didn't answer David's prayers back then the way he thought he would. But he answered them faithfully. And it is so encouraging for us. If you look back and you think through the Goliaths or the giants or the lions or whatever it is that you have faced in your past... God delivered you. It wasn't necessarily the way you thought, but he delivered you. He was faithful. He brought you through it the way he wanted to bring you through it. And that's the point. And so if you're here today, you're anxious, the Lord would say to you, talk to me. The Lord would say to you, let me know what you need. And the Lord would say to you, can, can you with thanksgiving remember, son, daughter, I've never left you. I've always been right here with you. I brought you through every single trial. I'll bring you through this one. And you can rest in me. And what does the text say the result is? Peace. Do you have peace this morning? You can. 